Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Clinic's talks production. The simple solution for PM&R healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, physiatrist and PM&R here at Mayo Clinic. The practice of physiatry is diverse, complex, and ever-changing. We all strive to provide high-quality and safe patient care, but these indicators are difficult to measure. There are many medical, governmental, and insurance entities requiring us to measure and improve these indicators. But how do we do that? Today we're joined by Dr. Erica Bellum-Conda, a physiatrist at Mayo Clinic and practice chair of physical medicine and rehabilitation, who will hopefully help us answer that question. Thanks for joining us today, Erica. Thanks for having me. When I was going through medical training, we learned a lot about medicine. We didn't learn a lot about the practice of medicine. How are we teaching our residents nowadays about the practice of medicine? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I have the best answer for you, but I think uh, one of the cornerstones of it is to really draw the residents into um, the practice through our experience, Um, sharing them with the residents and fellows, um, even maybe engaging them when we encounter any practice issues that come our way, and uh, allowing them an opportunity to participate um, in in those issues through a practice improvement project or um, even just a, a lively discussion could be helpful. You know, that's one of the things uh, I'm going through right now. I'm working on maintenance of certification and have to do a quality improvement project. And sometimes that can be quite daunting. Can you give us some ideas on how to set up a quality improvement project? I think the first and foremost important thing is to pick um, an aspect of your practice that aligns with your interests. Um, Your project is only as good as the time and effort you put into it. So if you pick something that really um, you find uh, motivating you to actually uh, pick up and do every day um, and pursue a project that matters to you, the more likely you'll succeed in in making a positive change. Uh, Another thing I think is important is to make sure that you pick a project that falls um, within your control to change. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than putting a lot of time and effort into something that turns out to be a dead end. Um, I also think that it's important to be mindful of what's called scope creep. Um, scope creep refers to a subtle process that you have a project with your original goals, and over time you make these small adjustments while the project is still in progress, and then you end up getting a project with goals that um, look nothing like what was originally envisioned. And that kind of uncontrolled project, project growth or project involvement um, can be harmful to your success and can lead to increased work required. Um, it can take uh, longer for it to complete, or it could even just fail before you finish it. Can you tell me the steps of a quality improvement project? Mm-hmm. Of course. So the first step is to really um, figure out what is it that you want to accomplish. Is there a particular problem that really has been bugging you and that you think that uh, you have it within your control to change? Uh, the next thing is to develop a project aim. So that's basically um, figuring out 
very specifically, um, what is it that you're trying to change and how you're going to measure it and what population you are planning on doing it um, for and what's the time frame that you want to accomplish this in. And of course, you want to make sure that that everything, all those different elements are, are realistic. Um, you don't want to um, set yourself up for failure by, by setting goals that are, are too lofty. Um, after that, then you want to get together your project team, which usually involves um, all of your stakeholders. Uh, stakeholders are people that um, might also be interested in, in your same um, quality gap uh, and might want to help you in your efforts. Uh, the stakeholders are also the people that uh, your project would impact, um, and, and you need to be able to develop a communication plan with those people, even if they aren't intimately um, involved in your project or, or part of your project team. Uh, after that, then you'll want to start to collect some data. Um, data is what's going to help drive what change you decide to do. The data helps you to um, determine well, gee, how big or how little the problem is. Um, is the problem truly the problem that we think we're trying to address? Because maybe you find you collect data and it's not a problem at all. Um, and then with that data, you want to um, make sure that whatever you're collecting, it's something that you're going to be able to have uh, be able to take action on. Uh, it, there's no reason that you should use your time and effort measuring something that you won't be able to change in the future. Um, so make sure that the, the data that you take is meaningful. Um, then there's different tools you can use after you've analyzed your data and kind of figured out uh, what direction you want to take your project in terms of uh, implementing change. One of the most common tools is called the PDSA cycle. Uh, that stands for prod, uh, Plan, Do, Study, and Act. Mm -hmm. So you plan out the, the change or the implementing um, your uh, improvement process. Uh, you actually um, do it. So that might um, involve that communication plan that you developed earlier on for your stakeholders. And then you do your data collection and you study that data afterwards to determine, did you make effective change? Was it the change that you expected? If not, why? And that's the, um, that's the uh, act part. And you want to um, then try and figure out, well, what changes can I make again? And to do another PDSA cycle to see if you can drive more change towards your ultimate goal which was your initial project aim statement. I can see one quality improvement project just kind of morphing into to many. Yes. Um, and one thing I didn't hear you say is that you have to achieve 100% correction with this process. Is that? No, uh, actually, um, like I said, you want to make sure that you are setting realistic goals mm. for yourself. You know, you can't... Um, for example, on our in an inpatient rehab unit, because of our patient population, um, everyone essentially everyone's at, at risk for falling, and falls can be inevitable. So you may not be able to um, eliminate 100% of the falls on a rehab unit, but you want. But let's say the rate of your falls is higher than the national standard. You benchmarked that, and and gee, we're we're above average. 
well, let's try and at least get to average. And then after you accomplish that, well, let's try and get better than average and just slowly try and aim for that. Let's eliminate all the falls, but but still keeping it realistic. So no, you don't have to um, you know aim for zero incidence of bad outcomes or or 100% of, of everything. But, uh, but it is a process of trying to make small improvements over time in order to get to your ultimate goal. Excellent. Are you a physiatrist preparing for your upcoming PM&R Part 2 oral boards? Do you need to brush up on your examination skills? Through a combination of didactic lecture, case vignettes, optional mock oral examinations, and online modules, the PM&R Board Review course can help guide your preparation. This vital course will be held on the historic Mayo Clinic campus in downtown Rochester, Minnesota every spring just prior to the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation oral examinations. For complete course information and to receive an email when registration is open, visit ce.mayo.edu slash PMR. You know, you brought up falls and fall prevention, and that's a, that's a big topic in, um, in our profession. How do you set up a fall prevention program? What is that? Uh, so we actually have a falls committee uh, in our uh, hospital, uh, not only at a institution level, but within our rehabilitation unit. And their primary uh, mission is to continuously work to reduce falls um, with injury uh, consistently. So, you know, things ebb and flow. So some months the falls will be higher uh, in their incidence and other months it'll be lower. And so they're working on trying to make it um, continuously a low, low rate on our rehab unit. And what they do uh, on a regular basis, I believe it's uh, quarterly, um, is they identify root causes for all the falls that had occurred during that time period. Um, then they uh, they collect this information by doing uh, falls assessments on every patient that comes in. These are done by the nurses or the therapists, uh, primarily the nurses. Um, they actually have implemented um, fall injury risk assessments. And so these they've identified that uh, for our specific rehab unit, um, patients over the age of 85 who might be on anticoagulants, who have osteoporosis or have had a recent fracture, um, who've had um, brain surgery, or that maybe they're, it's not brain surgery, but they are less than 24 hours from their surgery. Um, they have a... Uh, existing head injury that causes cognitive um, deficits, or they have spine precautions or weight-bearing restrictions, or they have um, lines, tubes, and drains that create obstacles. Those are all um, risk factors that we've identified on our unit that we can keep track of, and that adds to their fall risk uh, assessment. And we identify those patients and, and over time, this Falks Committee has implemented different interventions um, to put into place so that once we've identified these patients with falls, how do we keep those patients from falling? 
Um, things that have been implemented are a yellow armband that says falls risk. Um, bed alarms are required for all patients over the age of 65 at night, mm. overnight. Um, chair alarms are used as well. Um, we make sure that there's good communication between nursing and uh, the therapist and understanding what appropriate gate aids uh, the patients should be using, and if not a gate aid, what equipment, for example, lifts or easy stands or anything like that. Um, making sure that there's uh, appropriate education, not just for the patient, but the patient's family as to what these interventions mean, why they're in place, so that even um, the family or the patient themselves can be advocates for um, to, to avoid falling. Uh, we have individual uh, assignments. So we have a, um, a PCA that might sit with the patient in case they're impulsive and can't remember that, that they are at risk for falls. Um, our nursing staff um, at an institution level have developed something called intentional rounding. So you check on the patient every 30 minutes um, and making sure that they have everything that they need. Something um, They have also uh, implemented something called within, within arms reach. So that's uh, where they make sure every staff member who works with the patient is always within arm's reach when they're moving with the patient. Um, and then uh, we also discovered, uh, it, particularly for our unit, because we are practicing with the patient um, in their toileting and showering, and uh, tile, water, and nakedness are, are bad combination <laughs> in a big setup for falls. So um, we've discovered that with just implementing the use of shower shoes in the bathroom at all times has really helped in reducing that incidence of falls. So it could be something very simple as that. Um, from a staff standpoint, what they have implemented to help reduce falls um, is that they have uh, multidisciplinary post-fall huddles. So every time someone has fallen, everyone that who um, is who is caring for the patient at the time of the fall come together to talk about what happened, where things went wrong, where things might have um, gone better. Then after those things are identified, there is a big team communication. So that information is disseminated through the entire rehab unit staff so everyone can learn from that um, incidence. And then there's also transparency in that we have a calendar that's hung up that says, um, marks the number of days that we've gone since the last fall. And so we can, you know, congratulate each other and pat each other on the back when, you know, it, gee, it's been over 60 days since our last fall or something like that. Or, or gee, you know, we had to start over. We had our last fall yesterday. And it just brings it to the forefront and keeps it in, in all of our staff's minds that, this is a goal that we want to try and and maintain this and and sustain that change. Fascinating. So so I guess what I'm hearing is a fall prevention program is a type of quality improvement project. Is that a true statement? Yes, because it's not it's not something that you implement and then you just leave it. It's a constant evolution um, that they're um, doing all the time. They're identifying new reasons that uh, people are falling each time they do another huddle and they learn from that and they implement other uh, um, ways to reduce that risk for the next patient. So it's a, it is a very dynamic process. So what kind of resources are out there for someone, let's say I'm a new director of a rehab program and I want to set up a quality improvement project like our fall prevention program? Um, actually, there are um, 
some resources on the American Board of PMNR website. Um, they have some uh, learning uh principles that are kind of listed there on the website as you're trying to do a practice improvement project. They even have free pre-packaged um, uh, practice improvement projects that you can use to try and kind of get mm. your feet wet. Mm -hmm. um, and it, they really guide you through the whole process because really to learn to do quality improvement is actually to experience it. I think that's the best, number one best way to learn quality improvement and practice improvement. Um, examples that they have is um, for on the inpatient side would be reducing inpatient acute care transfers, you know, off the rehab unit back to back to the hospital, acute care hospital setting. Um, for an outpatient practice, they have, uh, for example, um, making sure that you have 100% injection timeouts to make sure that uh, you're um, following all the appropriate injection protocols. Um, they, you can do more of a self-directed practice improvement project, and they do have a list of uh, kind of the steps and all the, uh, it, and it's posed in kind of question form mm. of, you know, these are the things I need to be thinking of at this stage to help guide you through uh, a self-made project. Um, they have a similar thing like this for, on the American Academy of PMNR website as well. For um, members, I don't think you have to pay anything extra if you're not a member I think you do um, where they have these prepackaged um, programs that you can get and uh, it'll walk you through a practice improvement project and you can have it a little tailored based on whether you're inpatient or outpatient um, based on your interests fantastic we've been talking about PM&R practice environment with Dr. Erica Bellum-Conda a colleague at Mayo Clinic and the practice chair of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Thanks for your time, Erica. Thank you. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education in a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Online Board Review course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at ce.mayo.edu slash PMRBR online.